What up, what up, what up, y'all? It's your girl Simone with a new episode of the Real Talk with Simone podcast. I just wanted to thank you guys for tuning in for my first episode. I received a lot of support, great feedback, and I just love what I do. This episode is really special. I promised you guys that I would have interviews for people to come in. And basically, I hope that these interviews inspire, you know, listeners to go after what they want and chase after their dreams, whatever it is. I was able to interview Mr. Dominique Santana over the phone. Mr. Santana is the actor who plays Suge Knight in the new Tupac biopic film, All Eyes on Me. This was such a treat. Mr. Santana was able to talk to me and give us all the details about his role playing Suge Knight, the behind the scenes of the Tupac film, and how he got into the acting industry. So stay tuned. Thank you, Mrs. Santana, for, you know, just speaking to me. I mean, I'm a college student, you know, and I'm uh. an aspiring journalist. So, I, you know, I'm trying to start my own brand, my own business. So it means a lot that you would take the time to speak to me, honestly. Not a problem. You later moved to Wilmington, North Carolina. How did you get involved into the acting industry? Um, actually, after high school, I uh, I relocated. My family kind of migrated to Wilmington, North Carolina, and um, I was always interested in film anyway. Uh, coming up, mm-hmm. so uh, when we got to, I followed my family not long after that and went to Wilmington, North Carolina. And at the time, they had a, a booming film business. Mm-hmm. Booming film community around there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when North Carolina had a really good film incentive, and so you know a third of everything in the industry was being shot in North Carolina. Right. And right. so from there, you know, I just kind of started, you know, going to events and uh, just trying to figure out, you know, what what are the first steps to get in the industry. And um, you know, I got an agent, and then slowly started booking stuff, and mm-hmm. you know, just grinding. Mhm, mhm. And so you said in a recent interview, I think it was from April, you discussed how you were persistent in contacting the founder of Swirl Films and having to start, you know, your first role as a doorman. Did you ever lose sight or lose hope of your dream? And like, what kept you motivated? Uh, yeah. I mean, the the funny thing about that was um, I did their movie uh, Twenty Funerals. It was the first mm-hmm. one I did with those guys uh, years mm-hmm. ago. And, uh, you know, from there, they liked what I did, and that was a little bit part. And, uh, you know, so I asked them, I was like, you know, hey, you know, I'm assuming you guys are doing more movies, you know, can I get a shot at, you know, reading for a a larger role in your next one? And uh, so, you know, they were like, yeah. And about a year, I want to say like a year and a half went by, but that whole time, you know, I was constantly, you know, on holidays, you know, happy uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all that stuff, Happy Easter, staying in touch. <clears throat> and uh, so, you know, but over over the time, over the years, of course, you get to points where you do kind of, you lose the, uh, I don't want to say desire, but you lose the uh, the motivation to keep going because it is a lot of rejection and it is a lot of obstacles and hurdles. And it's just, it's really, I you know, what I usually say is you're doing, you're, See something that's impossible in your mind and in most people's mind, and right. that's you're know, going toward that goal. So it's always tough when you're going toward the impossible, until you realize that it's not really impossible. Right, right. And where did you where did you get to, to that point where you were like, you know what, this is really possible for me? Uh, you know, it's 
I say as far as the first time it was really kind of possible was first time seeing myself on television, which was right. uh, some years back. I, I did this role on Dawson's Creek uh, oh. years ago. I was actually an extra. I was an extra on the film set because I was doing extra work at that time to learn about film sets and just see how it works because I figure if I can at least see it and know it's real, then, you know, I can stay motivated to go toward it. And um, right. I was actually just, you know, blessed with a, a role right there on set because the director, you know, in the middle of shooting wanted to add another person in this scene and uh, to make the aesthetics of the scene work better. Right. And I happened to be there, and, you know, they pulled me and was like, can you say this line? And I was like, yeah. So <laughs> I said it on the, you know, said it to them, for them on the spot, and they hired me, changed my paperwork, moved me up to where the actors were, et cetera. And um, so when that first came on TV, you know, I had, had, it, I had been an extra on Dawson's Creek maybe like 10 or 12 times at that point. And so finally, you know, seeing the camera focused on me and, you know, hearing me say my lines, you know, with the other actors, you know, that to me was like, okay, you know, I made a huge step. At least at that time it seemed like a huge step. <laughs> so, right, right. You know, I made a huge step and was like, you know, excited about moving forward. And then you right. get to your times where, you know, because you got to live and stuff, and people think when they see you on TV, you know, you're automatically a millionaire. You made it. Right. And, right. It's not how it works. So I think I, I think I made like $1,000 for that, which isn't bad for, you know, a couple of hours of work in one day. Mm-hmm. But we all know how far $1,000 will stretch you. Right. So, right. You know, and if, if you're not doing that, you know, at least once a week, then, you know, you made $1,000. And then my next role after that, I think, wasn't for like a year. And so, wow. you know, you got to live in, the, you know, in between time and it is some struggle. So you get to get to points like, why am I doing this to myself? You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> I need to do something different, maybe, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And something that you brought up, which I think is really interesting, is like the paycheck behind it. You know, at least for me, from my experience with my peers and stuff like that, I think a lot of us get discouraged, like say for an internship or something, if it's unpaid. We're just not going to do it, you know, and I'm I'm trying to step out of that mindset because, you know, I just want to do what I love, you know, and then the money will come down the line. But I feel like a lot of times, at least my my perspective, at least people who are around my age, it's like, oh, well, I'm not doing that job because, you know, it's just this amount of money or it's no money at all. So right. I, it's good to hear from your perspective, you know, now – you can inspire other children to be like, you know, go get what you want, regardless of whether the money is in it or not. Your heart has to be in it. Yeah, it's like a saying. Uh, it's a saying that I've, you know, heard uh, before. You know, if if you chase the money, that's the quickest way to not get to it. Exactly. You know, instead, instead, follow your passion, chase your goal, and the money will fall in. I mean, right. that's definitely true. You know, um, of course, I look back now versus. What I started off getting, hell, when I was first started off, I wasn't making any money. Like 20 funerals, I didn't get paid for. Uh, dead heist, I think I made like $300 for a month's worth of work. That was before wow. SAG had the ultra-low budget, you know, uh, right. plan. And when it was just independent, they didn't have to pay you anything when it was independent, you know, at that time. and uh, But they did pay us a little something, and uh, but it definitely wasn't enough to pay my bills for the month, you know, but... You, you figure that those things out as you go. I told this story the other day. I was working. I was actually selling cars at the time. Um, I auditioned for 20 funerals. and um, Or excuse me, I think it was Dead Heist. One of the two. 
But um, you know, my 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 the manager at that car lot, he wouldn't let me off, and I, you know, basically gave me an ultimatum because I was like, look, I'm going. Like, I do this to pay my bills, but bills, that's right. my actual dream. You know, I'm not gonna miss that. And so I basically, you know, and I told him, I said, well, look, here's what it is. If you're gonna fire me for going after my dream, then so be it. You know, I'll figure right. that. I'll figure that out along the way. Right. And uh, so I was in a position where I was really choosing. I was making about seven, eight thousand dollars a month, you know, at that time selling cars. So it was good money, but you know that wasn't my my stopping point. And mm-hmm. so uh, you know I was willing to give up that money to go, you know, get a get a gig that I will work for a day for, for free. Long term. Right. Yeah. But you know, at the end of the day, it was a step into what I mm-hmm. want to do. So I was mm-hmm. willing to do that, and that's what's hard is because you got to be willing to go. All right, <laughs> I'm about to upset my whole life. If right. I don't even know, you know, it was in my mind like I don't even know what I'm gonna what's do after pay? this right. audition. Right. You know, as far as my bills and stuff, but I'm willing to let that go. Fortunately, you know, my boss, you know, I, I was one. Of, I wasn't the top salesman, but I was one of them. And so fortunately at that time, he was just like, you know, he gave in. You know, I called his bluff, and he gave in because I was like, well, then I'll just be fired. <laughs> and he was like, look, mm-hmm. go ahead and go do it. And just, you know, but when you come back, make sure you sell a car. So right. I was like, all right. You know, so he didn't end up firing me. But, you know, I, I was my point is what I was willing to do even to make a step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your story is so relatable because as a student journalist for me, it's not like the best financial stability right now. So I have a retail job. And then, you know, I was just about to ask you that, but you answered it. You know, how do you, how do you basically manage and balance that life where you have to, like, go and get money to support your family, your bills, and whatnot, the necessities, but then still go after your long-term dreams where the money might not be right now, but it will be in the long term. It's, that's a, it's different for everybody, but for me, mm-hmm. it's funny because that's what taught me to be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. because I knew, I said, all right, if I'm going to pursue this, I have to make money. I'm not right. with the whole struggling artist thing. I've done that for a little while and was like, that ain't for me. You know, I need to be able to live and enjoy my life. And mm-hmm. so I was like, okay, I, but I also need the freedom to go and take opportunities that, you know, come my way and uh, for a film. And so, you know, then I got into starting to do some of my own thing because I also worked in the club industry uh, for mm-hmm. years at that time and uh, mm-hmm. at night. And so um, when I was like 20, I, you know, I started off as a bouncer and then moved from that to, I, you know, I recruited, you know, a bunch of guys, and then I had my own security company for, you know, nightclubs and uh, really? concert events and things like that. Mm. Yeah, and then from there, I went back into uh, running clubs because that gave me freedom, you know. And uh, so then I started managing clubs and promoting, you know, concerts and things like that, all just basically hustling. Right. And from there, I was like, okay, now I want to own the clubs. And so right. then I made moves to, you know, buy a club and then you know then i had got another club so then i had two nightclubs and then when that you know when that became too much of a headache then i was like okay we got to do something that's more guaranteed and more you know grown up (laughs) so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then from there me and my former business partner we started a third-party finance auto finance company which then led to starting our own dealership and so you know but all of that came from you know my desire to pursue my dream and find a way to pay my bills yet have freedom to pursue opportunities as well so i figure if i'm the owner 
can't nobody tell me when I can and can't come, you know, can't go. come and go right. if I please. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, that's <laughs> so interesting. That's how they're doing that. Yeah, you know, because a lot of students like me who work in retail and stuff like that, it's just like, man, it's just this retail job. But it, sometimes I, I get like that. But then sometimes when I'm on the job, I'm looking at the managers. I'm analyzing how they're managing their business, how they start up a business. Because you know, maybe one day I want to have my own business. So just taking valuable lessons here and there, um, for the long long term. Yeah, and that's that's, uh, that's smart because you can take you can everything you do you can take lessons from it. Like selling cars, I never regret that. I never right. um, my life might have been different had I not done that because right. the things I learned I was able to take into just regular life. You know, I know how mm-hmm. to sell myself when I'm in front of uh, directors and casting directors and whatnot because of you know my ability to do that. I'm not you know as far as being nervous. I don't have those nerves like, you know, I did when I first started out because, mm-hmm. you know, selling cars, you know, you had to walk up on strangers and take them from I'm um, just looking to an actual purchase. You right. know, and you had a limited amount of time to do it, so you don't have no time to be nervous or scared to talk to strangers, you right. know. So just different things, you know, and that selling cars had nothing to do with the film business. Mm-hmm. But I was able yep. to take so much stuff from it, the lessons I learned from it, and the skills that I learned from it and apply it to what it is I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And people don't realize, you know, even if you're digging in ditches or whatever, when you look back as you pursue, as you pursue your goal and you start to cross finish lines, you know, you reach one goal and then you go to the next goal. And as you do it and you look back on your life, you're like, you start to see, wow, I had no idea, you know, that at that, I had no idea at that time, but all of that was part of my story, part of my journey that was leading me somewhere. Right. You know, so right. that's important. You know, even if you're working at McDonald's, there's something there for you to learn because, no, that's not your ultimate stopping point, but it's part of your story that you don't know is being written, and, you know, that will have something to do with where you end up. Exactly. I totally agree. So... You now co-star in Tupac's biopic film, All Eyes on Me, as the infamous Suge Knight. I have to say, you did a great job. Like, out of all the people, um, the actors for casting, I think you nailed it. Like, it was, it seemed like Suge Knight to me. Um, Thank you. You also mentioned in recent interviews how you studied him in terms of, like, looking at his interviews, his behind-the-scenes interviews, his records, his mannerisms. What did you learn knew like from playing him um because he's typically perceived as like the villain by outsiders so what is yeah. something surprising that you learned about should night uh i think i think you know from what i learned is it's more so that although he's not an angel you know so i don't want anybody to get that twisted like i'm saying like he's some innocent angel that's right. not the case but i think he's highly misunderstood um i think he's been demonized by the the media and you know uh, just over the years of the image, which partly, you know, it's his fault as well because part of the image they pushed, you know, that whole death row image was, you know, we we don't take no no BS and you know right. you bring it to us, we're gonna bring it to you harder. Right. Now that worked that worked at the time because that made people not play with them. Mm-hmm. But then, like I said, the negative effect was that that was the lasting impression, and the media was able to take that and really kind of run with it. Right. And what you so what you don't get to see is, yes, you see uh, some of the negative side, or you hear all the negative stories, and there were negative sides and negative stories. Mm-hmm. But 
there was a whole other side. They never humanized Suge Knight. Right. So, you know, you're talking about a person that had a mother, has children, has, and if you look at his children, his children, I've not said, I've not seen not one of them come out and say anything negative about him. Right. And that stood out to me. That made, that's what made me dig real deep because it's social media. We can access anybody nowadays or at least take a peek into who they are. Right. And, you know, so that was one of the things I did. You know, I, uh, my, you know, I had a mutual friend with one of his sons, um, you know, uh, Suge Jr. And he, mm. although I don't know him personally, you know, I was able to go and look. He had put a thumbs up on one of the posts or whatnot on Instagram. And, mm-hmm. you know, I went and looked at some of his stuff and, you know, he's all for, you know, supporting his father, et cetera, others. I did meet one of his sons at the premiere who also mm-hmm. loved my portrayal. And, you know, they were like, you got it right, you know. And it's just amazing to me that you hear about this person, but the people you would think, okay, if he's really just all of that person that we hear about, then, you know, it would be kind of a no-brainer. Then he's right. probably not a good father as well, and his children probably, you know, have nothing good to say about him. But it's the right. opposite. Exactly. They actually right. support them. They say good, great things about them. So they know a different person than what we know in the public. Right. You know? and so, but that's part of being a human being. There are different facets of people. And some people, you know, they're extreme in different ways. They can be extreme to the good. They can be extreme to the bad. You know? And that's what, you got, that's what you got with Suge. You know, he was somebody who didn't come to play no games. And if you did something right. to him... He was going to, you know, he's an Aries like I'm an Aries. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. part of our nature. You know, oh, you hit me, I'm going to hit you ten times now. Now, right. somebody else may say, that's extreme. But to us, you know, it just seems only right. That's what you have to do, right. <laughs> yeah, and I think the movie did a great job, to be honest. Although the movie was, you know, centered around Tupac, I think that it uh, did a little bit of Suge Knight as well because it, it opened the world of Suge Knight that I didn't know about. Um, for example, uh, I remember the scene where, you know, you're stuffing down the food in, in the uh, guy's throat, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> like, this is so scary, you know? But then I'm also uh, looking at the other scene where he's picking up Tupac from jail, and he's like, you know, you could roll with death row, and you could have black agency, black ownership. You could own your music. You could own your brand. And I was like, Wow, like that—that that to me, I really aspire to be like that, you know. So just yeah, seeing those two sides. Yeah, and that's the thing that people don't get is like, you don't ever hear about how Suge acquired Tupac, or right. you know, like you see in like you see in the movie, there were times, you know, even one of the scenes had gotten cut from the film, but there were multiple times before you know Pac was in jail that you know he actually kind of started you know laying that laying those seeds you know, to Pac, like, hey, you know, you want to come with the winning side, people really care about you, mm-hmm. you know, and whatnot, then, you know, come with me. But, of course, you know, he was hearing all the stuff, too, and was kind of staying away from death row. But mm-hmm. in the end, you know, at the end of the day, the only person that was willing to come and get Pac, not even his own label, you know, the only person that was willing to come and get Pac out of there was Suge Knight. And that was because right. Suge, you know, like I said, there were other parts that didn't make the film but it was showing you that Suge wasn't just like, oh, I can get money. What people don't understand is Suge had Snoop at that time. He had mm-hmm. Dre going platinum. Like, right. Suge had money. He didn't need right. Pac for money. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? He had the dog pound. He had others. He didn't need Pac for money, but he was a fan of Pac. He could see mm-hmm. what Tupac really was and what he could be if, you know, he removed the chains of corporate America off of him. 
Right. Right. And that's yeah, what he did. You know, he said, I'm wild too. Let's get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was the most challenging scene or part of the process for you, you know, and, and why was it so challenging? Um, I'd say the, the most challenging part was, uh, I would say the, the end scenes, you know, when mm-hmm. it's time for uh, Tupac to pass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just as a fan, because, you know, I'm, I've been a lifelong fan of Tupac. And right. being in that scenario and knowing, you know, being in there and having a, 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 a fly's view of, a fly on the wall view of what actually happened in that vehicle that day from their perspective, you know, it was not only crazy or insane just as an actor to do it, but, you know, you're looking over there at somebody who looks like Tupac. <laughs> right. Acting exactly. out this scene, you mm-hmm. know, and hearing those gunshots go off, and, you know, even though it's not real bullets, it's mm-hmm. real gun bullet sounds. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even just sitting there hearing that and knowing the whole time in the back of your mind, you know, you're trying to do your job, but you're also thinking about like, wow, you know, this is what, you know, really happened. You know, this is mm-hmm. what these guys heard. And, you know, uh, fortunately, we didn't have to feel what, you know, Tupac felt, but it still, you know, still makes your heart beat faster and, you know, just, you know, drop to the pit of your stomach because you're thinking about how as chilling as it is acting it out, you can only imagine what it's like for it to be really happening. And, right. you know, from where I was sitting, no, you know, seeing your best friend get, you know, hit with bullets and, you know, you don't know what's going to happen and, you know, seeing them dying and all that's crazy, mm-hmm. you know. And then Edie, Edie, I mean, who plays himself in the movie, that, I think that was one of the hardest parts for me, you know, to function in that scene watching Edie, you know, over Tupac mm. and knowing that, you know, he had really been there in real life at that spot, right? you know, doing that same thing in real life, you know, for somebody mm. he loved and cared about. Right. And now here we are reenacting it again with somebody who looks like him, mm. you know, going through the same motions. And I was like, how? Like, how, you know, I was like, how do you not even... You know, how are you able to even, you know, stand up and keep going in the mm-hmm, scene? Mm-hmm. Like, I had to commend him, you know, and I pulled him to the side and commended him because I was like, bro, I don't know how you were able to dig that up, you know, right. that emotion inside of you and make it through this again. Mm-hmm. I have to say that scene was probably the most memorable scene, just that uh, that pause where some, he Basically, Tupac is in the car in the passenger seat, and he turns around as he's about to get shot, and he's looking at who's about to shoot him. And then that just that moment right there, I was like, oh, like you know, the whole you could feel the whole energy in the movie theater. The audience yeah. members, we all just felt that. So yeah, I could I could feel that too. And yeah, and so, I didn't know uh, how they were going to use it in the movie. You know, I, right. when we filmed it, you know, we filmed things out of sequence and whatnot. And so right. I know what they were filming, but I didn't know how they were going to bring the audience to that point because, right. and that's a difficult, that's a difficult um, scene to lead up to because everyone already knows it happens. Yes, so how do exactly. you make, how do you make an audience that already knew this for the last 20 years that this happens? How do you make them still feel that moment mm-hmm. all over again? Like it's brand new. Mm-hmm. And, and you know mm-hmm. the way they led up to it, I loved it. That was to me that was my favorite scene in the whole movie. Yeah, which was exactly. there was a lot of there was a lot of great scenes, but the scene of me and uh, whether you were they, when they showed Shug and Pac in the car just being human beings. In that mm-hmm. moment, he wasn't Tupac, you know, quote unquote, and Shug wasn't Shug Knight. 
it was just two friends, you know, in a car, laughing and joking with each other. Mm-hmm. And so it really lightened the mood so much that you almost kind of start to forget, like, maybe it won't happen. Right. You know, exactly. and, and then it's just like, boom, you know, you're hit with reality and you're back to earth. Right. Even the scene before when he's deciding whether or not he wants to go out and he's with his yeah. fiance Kadada Jones, even that right. scene right there where he, he, he leaves and he goes back to the door for a moment and they're both, you know, yeah. like looking at each other but between the doors, but he still decides yeah. to go. I mean, it, that, that was an excellent job, I have to say. Yeah, that, that was because my first time seeing the movie all together was at the L.A. premiere. Really? In, uh, oh, okay. couple of, yeah. you know, last week. So, you know, I, I was wondering how it was going to go. And then when they dropped the gospel music at the end, I was like, okay, oh, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> you, got, <laughs> you got that. You got one tear out of me. I was there, and they still made me drop a tear. Oh, yeah, like, that Damn. gospel song. I turned to my mom. I said, Mom, what gospel song? You know, because my mom knows what gospel music. I'm like, Mom, what gospel song is that? Because that song was just was moving and the scene was moving and yeah, uh, yeah that was great um it really took you and, there <laughs> yes it did uh so tupac's music often alludes to you know the struggles that black citizens face such as poverty police brutality racism do you feel like those words are still true today do they still live today i mean we look at philando castile's case which was just recent and i'm still uh-huh. in shock that that we're not going to, yeah, that that police officer wasn't convicted. And you look at the recent case of Charlene Allows, the um, black woman, she was pregnant and her home was um, burglarized and she calls the cops and they end up shooting her in front of her four kids and she was pregnant. You know, she had mental um, instability and stuff like that. So how do you, how do you feel like those words are still true today? Well, I mean, it's, it's very true. I mean, especially one of my favorite songs is by Tupac's Changes. And, mm. if, you know, if you listen to Changes, I mean, it kind of creeps you out because it's like, it's like Pac was somewhere, you know, just predicting, you know, the future. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. But the thing that makes it even set, more sad is the fact that it's not so much he was predicting the future, but he was talking about things that haven't changed, mm. you know, that we still 20 years later, that's 20 years ago, mm-hmm. 20 years later, his song Changes is talking about everything that's going on right now. You know, mm-hmm. and we're realizing, you know, it's a it's a cold wake up call because we're realizing with this past election, with this uh the attitudes of people after it, uh, oh, yeah. you know, how the, the police brutality is still going. Uh and this is you know, the thing people are like, Oh, we don't know what's going on with the cops, they're shooting people lately and this, this and that. It's like, no, that's never been different. The only right. thing that's different now is body cams, cell phones that can, you know, go on Facebook live and show you right when something's happening. Right. That's the only thing that's changed is now we can all see it. Mm-hmm. It's probably it's probably not as bad as it used to be because can you imagine you seeing this right now? But can you mm-hmm. imagine in the South in 1950 where right. they you know they could do things and no one would ever know about it? Exactly. You, know, you can only imagine all the things that were done. And so we're sitting here with the you know the Philando Castiles and the Mike Browns and the you know just all these different stories that we keep hearing and we see the cops get off of it. Some of them, fortunately, you know, and depending on what area they're in, you know, they ain't let it slide. But then you have areas where they do let it slide. And the, the Philando Castile situation, I think, was the most um, blatant situation that mm. we saw where it was like, okay, this is obviously, you know, exactly. this is obviously a murder charge. Right. <laughs> there's no way around it. There's, there's evidence. There's video evidence. 
you know, they start, you know, I think it was cowardly, you know, of that police department to now release videos, those post videos that they've been releasing after the trial. After the fact. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, the fact that they had the mother of the child in handcuffs in the back of a squad car Mm. after you just shot up, you know, her boyfriend, like that Mm -hmm. was, that was, there was no even point to that, but it's, it's an illustration to the mistreatment of minorities, period, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and it's not that all minorities are not, you know, that all minorities are innocent completely. That's not what I'm saying because right. in every culture you've got criminals in every culture. Right. But, you know, the, we're talking about unjustified killings and mm-hmm. it seems to be more prevalent in our communities and, you know, it seems to be swept under the carpet constantly, even when it's blatant in your face. You know, we know what it is because, and it's not even all this officer's fault. He made that decision, and it was a horrible decision, but at the same time, you know, we have a tendency in America where mainstream media has propagandized black people so much to look a certain stereotype or to be a certain way that when these officers are approaching black men, they automatically, you know, that stereotype that's been ingrained in them automatically pops up, so they begin to be in a state of fear. And when you're in a state of fear, there's no telling what what you're going to do. And he reacted because his mind was running a million miles an hour, you know, creating this scenario in his own head that was actually not really going on. Right. And he reacted to that. Yeah. And you mentioned the body cams and how we have that now. The only thing that's different is that now it's broadcast. We can see it on social media. With, and, you know, before we didn't have that access. Um, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Because I feel a lot of people have been having a debate about we see these videos and we were hopeful that these body cams would actually bring us justice in terms of, like, the judicial system of prosecuting these police officers. But as we've seen with the video of Philando Castile, his um, – his murderer didn't go to jail and stuff like that. So do you think that it's a positive or negative? Because another way that people could see these these killings is that um, we are almost immune to it and we're desensitized to it in the sense that we see these black bodies violently being killed and it, it doesn't really hit us the same anymore, you know, or we're not, I guess, respecting the black body as much because you could just find it on Twitter and it's broadcast as if it's like um, a music video or a basketball game, you know, something that is quickly accessible. Yeah, I, I think the, the body cams to me are a great thing and not because of uh, the justice portion, because that, that ain't going to change nothing. Body cams, witnesses, uh, that won't change nothing to a system that works a certain way, regardless mm-hmm. of what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I think the body cams, you know, are capable of is like, you know, back when I used to own the clubs, the main thing we used to tell our bouncers are, you're not here to just bust heads. You're here as a deterrent. You know, the first thing we want is for people to see you and not want to fight or not want to do break the rules of the club. Now, if they do it anyway, then of course you have to address the situation another way. But overall, you know, think about how many officers don't do something because they know their body cam is on, you know, or think of how many times an officer would have shot someone, but he stopped to think about it because he was like, this is going to be on camera. And if I get this wrong, you know, this is going to be one of the things brought up against me. So mm-hmm. let me let me think about this a little more. So you do have some trigger finger 
you know, happy trigger finger cops out there, but think okay. about how many there would be out there if they didn't have to first stop and think, I'm being recorded right now. Right. I didn't even think about that. That's that, Yeah, that's a great point. Right. Yeah. yeah. And as a black man. All we hear man, about is the things that do happen. Exactly. <laughs> and as a black man, it must be difficult and honestly scary for you to see these tragedies occur over and over again and you even say that this has been a continuous thing. So, you know, I'm only 19, but I can only imagine what has been in your childhood and generations before. Um, how do you remain, like, sane and hopeful, and what message would you send to the black youth as we're just seeing this? Uh, you know, I, I've been harassed by police officers on more times than I can remember. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I'm not saying it happens every day, but, you know, in my lifetime, I'm in my 30s now. And, you know, I remember even from being a kid being disrespected by police officers all the way into adulthood or driving a nice car and being in a suit because I'm handling business and an officer pulls me over with some BS mm -hmm. excuse, basically because he saw me in a nice car and he asked me, am I a driver? Wow. <laughs> I'm like, no, this is my vehicle. And exactly. he said, oh, well, why are you wearing a suit? And I said, because I'm a professional. Get out of my face with the racist comments. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and so, you know, I do, I know that life. I don't just speak on it from a point of what I heard. You know, I've experienced this in my own life more times than I, you know, care to continue having that happen. Um, mm. So, and I can't say, you know, it won't happen. I mean, hell, we're just. A uh, couple of days ago, you know, I was going through the airport with my manager and TSA, uh, a TSA person, you know, I was flying first class. So, you know, you have the regular line and then you have the priority line. Right. And I, my ticket was already booked. I was first class. I was supposed to go through the priority line. And, you know, all that's in the system already. Now, my manager, he, uh, he came out a little after me. So he was flying back on standby. So he didn't even really have a guaranteed ticket, but he's white. Right. And so he's behind me, and I walk up there, and the lady literally looks at me, and she says, she points to the regular line. She said, no, 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 your entrance is over there. Mm. And I, was, I looked at her. I was like, well, what do you mean? You didn't even look at my ticket. And yeah. she was like, you know, with an attitude, she was like, let me see your ticket. And she looks at the ticket, and she goes, oh, okay, all right, yeah, you are in the right line. And yeah. so she lets me through. My manager comes right behind me with a standby ticket. He, she just lets him walk through. He's not right. even – supposed to be in the priority line exactly you know? and even he turned and he was like wow he was like bro white privilege is alive and well right and i was like yeah and he was like you know we were just talking about how crazy it is that even on the level that i'm on because of my skin color i'm still dealing you know i still have to deal with these same issues it don't matter how mm -hmm. successful you are mm -hmm. you know unless you get to a point to where you're like will smith or denzel where then people know, like, they assume, like, oh, it's you. We, I'm assuming you're flying priority. Right. <laughs> and so right. one thing I would say to the black youth, though, is to, to stop believing the lie that's been fed to our community that you are powerless because you aren't. You know, you're one of the most powerful beings on this earth, and it's been a lot. It's been billions of dollars spent over decades to make sure that you don't understand how powerful you are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the higher up you go into the, the hierarchy, so to speak, it's not even about race. It's about money. It's mm -hmm. about keeping control because whoever controls the board has all the money mm -hmm. and, you know, and the wealth. And so 
you know, as especially the black youth, because they, um, you know, I, don't, I won't say all of the black youth, but I mean, as we've all seen, it's definitely been the last two generations have definitely been a more carefree, um, not very involved in politics, not very involved in community, okay. uh, and more so just focus on themselves and allowing themselves to be boxed into this idea that they don't have to care and that they don't have to care because they don't have any power. And they do. It's more, it's more to power than just voting. You know, economy, yes. economic power, I say it all the time, economic power. That's what it's all about. Yes. You know, make the money, spend the money in your own communities, ownership. It's yes. hard. It is harder for us than anybody else. But it's possible. I've done it with, starting with nothing. I've yes. done it. And it was the hard way. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, you can go, you can own businesses. Sometimes they'll work. Sometimes they won't work, but you still have to push to get to that level, and you have to learn. You have to constantly learn, constantly read, constantly continue to better yourself because the more you read and the more you challenge your mind, it will change your way of thinking, which ultimately changes who you are. I definitely agree, and something that you brought up, and I, I really appreciate that you bring this up because not a lot of the uh, celebrities, you know, mention this, at least from my perspective is the power in like money and keeping that within the community. Um, someone told me a statistic where in within the black community, the black dollar is spent outside of the black community within six hours. But whereas yeah. in other communities, it lasts for days, maybe even weeks. And so that was yeah. just shocking to me, you know? Yeah. We're the, we're the most impulsive buyers and you know, we buy the most useless crap. And uh, we, we do it all outside of our com own community. So none of those mm -hmm. dollars trickulate back into our communities. That's why you don't see our neighborhoods refurbish and rise up. That's why mm -hmm. you don't see us having a power, you know, uh, a power stance on the, on the, on the major levels. Is because everyone knows we're going to give our money all the way to other communities. And mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with spending money in other communities but you can't say what you want for your community and not spend anything in your own community. Right. right. Yeah, I see that. I, and I feel like it's difficult because I see a lot of some of my peers, they want to start businesses, but they're not getting that support, you know, where it, yeah. nobody has that urge to, like, go buy a black businesses. We'd rather buy at such and such, but we know that other, you know, small local black businesses, we, we – we have those items available to, to sell and those products to sell, but just don't have that support yet. So yeah, it's just sad. Um, What's the stigma on black business that, you know, it's always a second tier kind of business. And, you right. know, and I've been to some black businesses where you walk in like, come on, bro. You got lawn yeah. chairs in here. It's a restaurant, <laughs> you know, it's like, if you're going to do it, you know, do it all right. the way. Yours has to be because you're a black owned business you automatically already have to be, you know, on a whole nother level than your competitors. Right. You know, you're going to have to work harder to get those dollars in because you don't just want, you know, the whole, the whole thing is, because that's another thing we have to focus on is have black businesses, but don't make it so Afrocentric that nobody else but black people want to come there mm. because then you limit your market. Walmart doesn't limit their market to only white people, even mm -hmm. though it's owned by white people. They have their market open to everybody. That's why they're a massive company because mm -hmm. everybody feels like they can shop there. And they make it so that everyone can. And we as right. you know, black business owners, we have to do the same thing. 
it's cool to be black owned. That's a great thing. But it also has to be an atmosphere created that invites different cultures to come shop with you so that now black people can choose to also spend money in their own community, but you're drawing in other communities, which makes you a larger force. Right, right. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I hope people listen to this interview and, you know, they it sparks some type of change. Um, and so I don't want to take up too much of your time, but what would your what would the message be that you would want all eyes on the uh the movie to send to to anyone? Because my fear is for the movie, I think a lot of people are gonna get it, but I feel like there's some people who are just gonna be centered on like Tupac and Suge Knight's thug life, gangster life, whereas they're not looking at Suge Knight and when Suge Knight was saying black ownership, black agency, and Tupac was talking about police brutality and poverty. So what what would your final yeah. message from the movie B? Uh, you know, the, the good thing about this film is it, it drops a lot of jewels and there's multiple messages in it. And I think that's why we've, you know, is why we've had some, some critics, you know, be haters and, you know, want to try to bash the film because as always, anything that puts out a message like this that really speaks to minorities, um, you know, they, they, the powers that be try to silence that message as we've seen right. with some of everyone. You know, right. uh, and this this movie is no different. You know, it has it has too many good messages, but it's like, how do you make a Tupac Shakur movie and not deliver any messages when that's what Pac was all about? Right. And so, you know, that that had to be in there, even though the the filmmakers knew this is going to make us a target for you know some of those that don't want to see these kind of messages going out to the uh, to the black communities, black right. and brown communities. You know, so we already knew that was coming, and it did. You know, but the fans stood up and you know supported anyway, thankfully. And uh, but the ultimate message, you know, that I would say take from the movie is just to uh, you know take Pac's life as a lesson. You see what he was trying to do. Uh, you see what he was evolving into. But then you also see where you know some of the other elements he led into his life also stopped him from continuing that path that he was on. Right. And so, you know, just be careful what you let into your life and then stand for something. You know, I think right. the ultimate message in the film was, you know, it, it's a cliche saying, but it's true. You know, stand for something or you'll fall for anything, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's like whether it be more so in your community, whether it be even in your own family, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's many different ways to stand up for something. You don't have to be a Black Panther but or an activist, but at the same time, you can still find little ways to stand for something, you know, even if it's just going and talking to kids at the local um, boys and girls club, you know, or, you know, just going out there and, you know, seeing somebody and saying, Hey, you know, I see you're out here homeless, you know, here, this is what I think, you know, I don't want to just give you a sandwich, but I want to introduce you to some people and some programs that can maybe help you transition out of this, position you're in mm-hmm. or to just get real active you know we we come from a tribe mentality you know and somewhere along the way you know through slavery and you know other things we've lost that whole tribe mentality and i'm sure in africa you know you had different tribes that had beasts with each other and stuff but ultimately what they had in their own community you could not come into their community and disrespect or harm anyone in their community and there'd be no repercussions Exactly. Or there'd be, you know, <clears throat> and as far as trades and goods and stuff, they relied on each other. It wasn't just the mentality is more so now in the black community is, you know, I got to get mine. 
Right. And it's all about self, you know, and you can, of course, you have to focus on self and your own family and things like that, but you also can't forget that you're part of a community. You right. know, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not an activist. I'm not a politician. I'm not going to get in politics or any of that stuff. But one thing I am going to do is continue, you know, what I do already, which is go and talk to kids. You know, my big thing is I'm a living, walking example of coming from poverty to, you know, having uh, uh, money and success and all that good stuff and someone that they can see in pop culture and, you know, not just say, oh, man, that guy's great, but also hear my story and say, look, you know, I'm, I'm a walking, breathing example of no matter where you're starting from, you can make it to better things. But the other side of it is learn, you know, learn to serve, you know, learn your purpose. Because I do all this stuff, and, yes, it's all great, and it's wonderful to look up in the theaters and say, hey, you did great. But that's not the thing. That's not all of what I want to be known for when I leave this earth. You know, I want some people saying, hey, you know, when I was 11, you know, he came and talked to my school, and what he said to me inspired me so much that I got on this path, and now, you know, I'm the CEO of this company, or now I have this major uh, uh, charity organization that helps you know, single mothers or, you know what I mean? Something, just right. dropping seeds. Right. Yeah, amen to that because, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And, and just to see you do that, it, it's, it's an inspiration, you know. Um, Thank you. Any future plans that we should look out for in your career, anything that we should see, you know, Dominique Santana doing to keep a lookout on you? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of couple of different things. Um, like I said, I'm a writer and a producer as well, and um, so starting to do more producing now uh, with some projects. Uh, so um, you know, there's like a TV show that I'm producing on. Uh, okay. There's another a scripted show. That one's like a reality show, but uh, there's a scripted show I created uh, called The UC that I also plan to star in. That we're trying to find a home for with like Netflix or HBO. Okay. Um, there's uh, other other films on the table that we're looking at to see what's the right you know next moves, and uh, you know there's another one. There's another major one I can't really publicly talk about just yet, mm-hmm. um, but you know not quite done with the West Coast. I'll put it that way. Uh, okay, all right. So we just leave it yeah. all set. <laughs> thank you so and much. And then going to Africa in September. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. So you got a lot to, we have a lot to look forward to, and I just can't wait to see, you know, the future of your career. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm, yeah, I'm going to definitely do my best to stay busy. Yes, and thank you so much for taking this time to, to talk to me and for this podcast. Uh, it really means a lot to me. Thank you so much. No problem, and I, I wish you the best on your future endeavors. Thank you so much.